the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture. Here he is, Michael Savage. The man who saves wolves, a pleasure to see you. <laughs> Hello, hi. Great, nice to meet you. Great job, Eli. And I oh, thank you so much. The return of wolves and iconic yes, predators struggle to survive in the American West. Timber Press, April 2023, available on Amazon. Eli Frankovich joins us today on the Michael Savage podcast. Eli is a journalist who covers the environment, conservation and outdoor recreation in Washington for the Spokesman Review, the state's second largest newspaper. He has been published in the Seattle Times the Chicago Tribune, the Miami Herald, the Charlotte Observer and elsewhere. He lives in Spokane, Washington, and he joins us now on the podcast. I am a conservationist. I don't call myself an environmentalist because it has connotations that are negative to some. I think everyone can agree that conservationists are good people. We want to conserve the environment. We want to save the poor animals. We want to clean the air and the waters, as Aristotle wrote, airs, waters and places. As a man who's trained in botany and collected medicinal plants all over the South Pacific, and I've saved ecosystems here and there, I certainly appreciate what you're doing with the wolf. The Savage Nation. It's savage on demand. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink. Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, gold Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989-898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989-898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989-898 with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989-898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. First of all, I want to stick to your book because I want you to sell books. Sure. 
If you're yeah. taking time out of a hike, you've got to sell a book now and again. The book is The Return of Wolves, an iconic predator's struggle to survive in the American West. It came out last spring, and I highly recommend it, and I really appreciate your time, Eli. I get it that you write about other things, right? I mean, you just cover conservation, outdoor recreation, the environment, but you're also an outdoorsman, right? I mean, you're a climber, a rock climber. Mm-hmm. Uh, what- yes, rock climber. I've, 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 I'm learning to hunt. I'm a late onset hunter, um, a number of other things. Yeah. When you hunt, you, you hunt with weapons. What kind of weapons? Guns? Uh, uh, rifled. Yeah. Yeah. So here you are a conservationist who's not a, a shame to admit that you hunt. And I've- no, I think, I mean, that's one of the amazing things about America is we've got this long tradition of hunter conservationists. And I think, I hope that continues. Um, hunting in my experience puts you in connection with the land hmm. in a way that not, not a lot else does. It's a bit of an I- irony, right? Um, yes, it but, certainly is. Now I learned that last year, last year but, you reported from Ukraine. What was that about? Yeah, uh, that was a bit of an, an offshoot, but the newspaper that I worked for, um, well, basically when the war started in Ukraine, I, uh, I think like most other people were, that's a pretty much all I could think about or focus on. And, and so I knew about a number of folks from the region that, you know, that the paper that I worked for covered that were going there to help uh, a couple like former, uh, like a- ex-military guys that were going to volunteer and some doctors. And, and so I basically asked my bosses like, Hey, uh, will you send me there? Uh, and, and they, I didn't think they would, but uh, they, they kind of ran it up the flagpole and eventually I got the go ahead and I spent uh, six weeks over there. Although I wasn't in Ukraine that whole time. You know, I saw an article yesterday, which I put on my website of an Irish Rambo who went there to fight with the Ukrainians and he left after 17 months saying Ukraine frontline is horror, genocide, slaughter, says Irish Rambo, who is leaving after 17 months. And I watched the video of him. Uh, Ukraine will haunt me. He said there are dead people everywhere, Russian dead, Ukrainian dead. Yeah. And he said the biggest problem when we get into the trenches is stepping over the dead bodies that are already there from the last people who went in. He said that really haunts you. So he was a volunteer, went there to help Ukraine, and then he couldn't take it anymore from the death and the dying. And for me, I can't stop. I I lay awake and I can't take it anymore. This war is crazy. I always thought leftists and liberals were against war. And then I I quote conservatives who allegedly were conservatives are really for war. Leftists are for the war. What the hell is going on that everyone doesn't understand not only is the bloodshed unnecessary right now, there's no talk of peace. There's no talk of, 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 of getting together and working this out at the UN. Eli, what do you think of all of this? I mean, I, I think it's sort of unconscionable that we're not pushing for peace more. Um, I don't think people, I don't think, I mean, I mean, this is the crazy thing about being an American, right? Is we don't, we, we haven't had a war on our soil in I don't know, however long. <laughs> and, and so we, we don't really know what, I mean, the brutality of it. We've been in wars, obviously, and we, many of our, our, our men and women are veterans, combat veterans, so they know. But yes. as, a general, as a general population, you don't realize like how just horrible it is to have your home bombed or you know, your, your, your neighbors killed. And, and I interviewed folks, Ukrainians, who had escaped from Bucha, right? One of the worst uh, places there. And, and it was just like heartbreaking and and you can, and so relatable too, because you could just imagine, I could imagine my city. Um, cause it, there's, you know, yeah, it just, you could just imagine it happening. 
And no, all you got to do is go to downtown have- Seattle and watch them. <laughs> <laughs> what they've done to Seattle, you have a combination of the predator wolf and war all in one right. when they start yeah. burning buildings down. No, but seriously, yeah. the UK frontline is horror, genocide, slaughter, says Irish Rambo. This guy's as tough as nails. And he couldn't take the horror that he was yeah. seeing of, of stepping over dead bodies. And I found that to be very intriguing that you as a conservationist, environmentalist, writer of the environment, uh, know something more about these situations than people, you know, may imagine. So the book, in a way, The Return of Wolves is not tied to war. But doesn't the wild animal live in a state of war all the time? Aren't they basically At points? Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of beauty, too, in the natural world and, and tender. I mean, it is it's tooth and fang. But then there's also there's also tenderness. And and you see that with wolves. They're, I mean, they're brutal killers, right? Yes. The way, if you've ever seen a wolf pack on a video take down an elk, it is not a death you would wish on your worst enemy. Mm. And then the the flip side, right, is that they're they're great parents. Like they they really care for their young. And wow. And so you, you, I don't know. I see some similarities there with humans, right? Like we can be just brutal <laughs> to each other, uh, but then we can also be incredibly tender and 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 these humanitarian gestures. And, and I saw that in Ukraine, like this bizarre uh, juxtaposition of just the worst, the worst reality combined with this incredible outpouring of um of of you know humanitarian aid and support and care so yeah i i definitely see some some parallels there and i think the broader thing my, my book is not about ukraine at all <laughs> but um it is about the social and political divisions that i think have really pulled this country apart which I, we do see with ukraine and you see it in the wolf debate you get uh, you get people that um, are should agree on most things, just fighting viciously or, around this one topic. And I, I just hope we can sort of sidestep that. I think it's a real tragedy that there's this politicization of conservation versus environmentalism. Like we should all be kind of rowing in the same direction. Oh, I agree uh, 100%. Particularly when it comes to the place, we, the place we live. Yeah. Well, I agree a thousand percent. We have one earth, one, one earth, one ecosystem called the globe. I agree a hundred percent. I may disagree with <laughs> some about certain facets about what's being reported oh, with regard sure. yeah. to alarmism. I mean, I right. see this. Is the thing is, I don't think alarmism helps us when we're talking about climate change, for example. And, and that's a separate topic. I don't think we need to even get into it. I'm a boater. I live next to the water. I live 15 feet from San Francisco Bay for the last 25 years. We have not seen one centimeter rise in in, 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 you know, in, 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 in the height of water, whatever you call it, tide lines are identical that they've been. Right. And, and if you go back to the Pleistocene, we had, high, you know, much more warming then than we do now. That's before Henry Ford, you know, was a glint in his grandfather's eye. So, yeah, of course, but doesn't mean we shouldn't try to make the earth a better place for all of us. Right. So, right. and I really appreciate people <laughs> like you in, in sense that you're devoting yourself to uh, uh, these subjects of, of, you know, when you say you write for the newspaper world in the area of environment, conservation, outdoor recreation. So you cover it from all spectrums, because if you cover it from the environmental point of view, you're dealing with one faction and you cover it from the outdoor recreation side. That's the hunter, for example. So you have to really talk to all of them, don't you? So, yeah, I mean, that's that's why being a journalist is, I think, such a great career is that you get to talk to, to both. You get to talk to everyone and you, you try to I mean, my goal has always been to try to understand why people think what they think. And and I think that, 
you know, I think people forget to do that or choose not to do that quite often. It, well, we yeah, we dehumanize the other side. That's what's yeah. going on in America. Right wing says the left. Yeah, other. we communist yeah. fascist, communist fascist, right. Nazi uh, uh, Marxist. I hear it all the time. And we forget there's a human being inside those eyes. Before you go, Eli, how did you know, I don't want to pry into your personal life, but if you care to talk about it, where did you grow up? What did you grow up learning? So I grew up in. Yeah. I grew up in North Idaho, uh, in the panhandle of Idaho, and I actually I'm really thankful for how I grew up in retrospect. I grew up with a you know fairly, I would say, liberal, progressive uh, family. My dad's a professor and my mom owns a yoga studio, so you can probably guess uh, kind of what well, their politics you are, are. You're a stereotype. Uh, but, you're you're the stereotype. Yeah, I am. Yeah. <laughs> but I grew up in a very politically and conservative uh, place, one that had um, traditionally been very sort of blue collar um, uh, a Democrat, I would say like union Democrats, but then with out, uh, off offshoring and all of this and just changes in, yes. in, in everything. Um, it, it became, well, a lot of jobs left, a lot of manual blue collar jobs left mining and whatnot. And then it became more politically and socially conservative. And so I've always been sort of kind of in between, like, I, I can't, you, you can't just think one, you can't just believe what you think is the only truth I understand in a that. place like that. You have to try to understand why you know everyone, almost everyone else around you thinks differently and i think that i'm just so grateful for that because uh it's just a, it's it, it doesn't serve anyone to just be entrenched in your own beliefs and it's also just kind of more it's more boring it's just it's a very like limited worldview um so you, I, wanna, that's kind you of need the, to that's run for office eli you need to run <laughs> no for <way>. office <laughs> can you imagine can you imagine a centrist running for office today yeah it wouldn't work <laughs> H- hated by everybody <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you won't be that's loved okay. by everybody. That's what a good journalist is, <laughs> no, right? I've decided. I've learned the hard way that no matter what you do, people are going to hate you anyway. Yeah, no matter what you do, no matter what you say. Michael Savage, a host like no other. And I think you need to tell the people, Eli, why are wolves? important because we've been told that they're evil folklore tells us that they kill which they do so do we (laughs) with the the apex predator on the planet of course as we can see in ukraine right now men killing men for no reason whatsoever the butchering goes on and so they were nearly eradicated in the 1990s eli the gray wolf has made a comeback how did that happen yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty incredible story. And and honestly, I th- you know, there's a lot of bad ecological news and whatnot. But I think this is a this is like a bright spot, <laughs> uh, to be honest. Um, yeah, great. So gray wolves were pretty much eradicated throughout uh, North America or the lower 48, I should say, uh, by the 1920s and 30s. And that was a very sort of intentional decision, um, poison and, and whatnot. Um, and then things began to shift in the 1990s. The Clinton administration reintroduced gray wolves into Yellowstone and parts of Idaho. Um, and this this was a reintroduction. These wolves were taken from Canada and and placed there. And uh, they were in a you know in Yellowstone, one of the largest sort of um, untouched, at least by human development, um, ecosystems in the world. And, and they did quite well. Uh, and they've spread out from there. And in the case of Washington State, they 
kind of made a return uh, in 2008, the first sustainable reproducing pack was confirmed. And that was, those wolves came from uh, Yellowstone and also from populations in Canada. And that's broadly similar in in pretty much every Western state. Um, Wolves have sort of naturally returned uh, reproductions in in Yellowstone. How does a pack from another country adapt to a new ecosystem or a new environment. In other words, basically they're immigrants. They're, they're forcibly repatriated or put into a new environment. How do they adjust immediately? You know, I'm a dog lover and I've had dogs since I'm a kid. Dogs are creatures of habit. What about wolves? Yeah. I mean, wolves are incredibly versatile, right? At one point they were the, one of the most, they were the most widely distributed land mammal on planet earth. So they, Wolves live in the Arctic in negative 40 degree conditions. Wow. They also live. Yeah. They also live. They've, they've also lived in India and in the and desert climates. Really? Um, so they're just, yeah, they're incredibly, incredibly um, versatile. And so, and then the other point to that, um, you know, the, the ecosystems between the Western U S and, and Canada, uh, you know, Eastern or Southern Canada, I should say um, it's not so wildly different. So I, th- I think that adaptation wasn't too hard and, and honestly, if you think about it from the wolf perspective, when they were plopped down in Yellowstone, they had these huge elk herds that hadn't had predators for, you know, 80 years, really. Oh, my uh, God. So that was kind of like a all you could eat, all you could eat buffet for a little bit there. <sighs> OK, so wolf restoration projects began in the late 20th century. Who was behind it and why? Who suddenly said, oh, the wolf is good? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a, I don't think there was just one person, of course, but um, as we, so I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with um, the North American model of, of wildlife conservation. And, and so this is this very, um, this model that's very specific to the Americas. And it um, sort of does a lot of conservation work on the backs and with the money from hunters and, and others um, who are very like passionate, engaged user groups. And in the U.S. and North America broadly, there had been this big decline in, in animals, um, elk, deer, buffalo, obviously. And that all started to change. Um, Teddy Roosevelt and others sort of began to champion um, conservation, like you would say, from sort of a, a sportsman or sportswoman's perspective. But he was a great, he was a great, um, was a great and, conservationist. Teddy Roosevelt is very un, unsung yeah. as a conservationist. He, he gave us our first national park in um, the Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Didn't he do it in the Vancouver area? I believe so. Yeah, I think yeah. that's correct. Yeah, yeah he and, was a and great so conservationist. There was this buildup of uh, sort of this desire to, to return some of these species. And, and it started out with yeah, deer and elk and whatnot. And, I, and then um, there was uh, uh, people started to look more at like predators, like wolves, these animals that had, like you'd mentioned, traditionally been vilified and, and exterminated um, for some understandable reasons. If you were a shepherd, a wolf pack could, I mean, they could destroy your whole life, right? <laughs> you could starve. Well, um, I was, I, was so inter- I think that was, it was interesting up. to me. I was at a dog show years ago before COVID at the cow palace here in San Francisco. And they had various artifacts. And of course I'm a fan of, I love dogs, but the wolfhounds always intrigued me. I had a friend, an Irish bar friend, the one, one in the bar, his name was Fian the dog. <laughs> and I never saw a dog like this in my life, the size of it, the way it could run. We were sitting outside the bar one day and Fian was lying on the ground in the sawdust. 
and he saw something on another street over and that dog jumped up and was able to lope, not run over to that street. And it was like three strides. It looked like to oh, me. Yeah. I had never seen an animal like that in my, you know, in the dog world. Yeah. But but interestingly, at, at the show, the dog show. They had a collar made of iron with spikes on it that the shepherds used to put around the neck of the wolfhound and the wolfhound would hide amongst the sheep. So when the wolf attacked the herd, the, the wolfhound would pop up and have a little extra help, which was the wolf collar. It was right. unbelievable. I mean, right. how the hell does a wolfhound fight a wolf? In right, right. <laughs> well, and I think that's something, I mean, that's one of the things I hope to get at in my book is, you know, a lot of the people that really are the most excited about re returning wolves, right, are the ones that don't live anywhere near wolves. <laughs> and I would put myself in that situation. I, I'm a, I live in a, a city, right? Um, so I don't, I, I'm not having to coexist with wolves on a day to day basis. Uh, but wolves are, yeah, they're, they're, they're powerful animals, right? It's not like, uh, it's not like just your dog. It's, it's like what you're describing, these powerful, uh, fierce predators. And, and I think a lot of people sort of don't realize that. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. How big is an adult male wolf? Yeah, I mean, they're smaller than you'd actually think. I think like a, a, a large wolf would be uh, right around 200 pounds, 180, uh, wow. you know, somewhere in that range. So it's, it's definitely big, but... Wow. Um, I think anything above that is is really sort of an outlier. Well, 180 is a big animal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a big animal. And, and we have yeah. to remember how strong an, a wild animal is. You know, we, yeah. we have lunatics who go into a zoo. They used to jump over the walls to go pet the tiger and get killed in Honolulu. You know, people get high and think that the animal was their friend. They don't understand what a wild animal actually is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, and there's all sorts of stories of, of folks who really have some sort of a, a romanticized vision of what a wolf <laughs> is kind of getting in trouble with that. <laughs> so, no, I like so. the way you put that. So, you know, you're you're a realist when it comes to the whole picture. You know, the wolf was a, is a predator who will kill the herd of sheep or, or cattle or or whatever they're raising. And so the cattleman says, wait a minute, I, that's my livelihood. Kill the wolf. Right. How how are the cattlemen dealing with this reintroduction of the wolves? Yeah. Yeah. So I spent a fair bit of time with uh, ranchers in eastern Washington mm -hmm. and, and throughout the state. And these are smaller to mid-sized operations. Um, so I think they're at least from my perspective, it's it's a pretty honorable uh, career. Right. They really they've lived on the land. They know the land. Uh, they care about their animals by and large. Um, and it's been a struggle for them. Wolves don't kill a lot of cattle. It's like a small numbers, uh, but they do. That does make an impact still because the margins are quite thin. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a bunch of like second and third order implications. And this is how the ranchers have explained it to me. Um, so you might, you know, you know, you maybe only lose two, you know, two animals to wolves, but then you have some animals that are injured and then you have some animals that just disappear and you don't really know. Maybe they died. Maybe wolves got them. Maybe not. And then there has been some studies showing that um, the presence of wolves, uh, it reduces the overall weight of the animals um, just via stress. And that's obviously oh, that's funny. The a nervous, a nervous cow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a oh, good yeah. weight loss diet. <laughs> yeah. 
So living in America yeah, must be right. good for everyone's <laughs> everyone's health index. Yeah. Uh, the Wolf Beach diet. Yeah. Everyone, every, everyone's um, nervous then, here all the time. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then the last the last thing that they point to is that um, there there's a there's some research showing that um, miscarriages are more common. Uh, again, due to stress. Wow, and that's awesome. And so I think that, yeah, well, yeah, not, not for the rancher. No, but I'm saying and all of the all... effects, the 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 anxiety in a cat in the cow herd. Yeah, you know, brings me yeah. to the time I went to a slaughterhouse in Fiji. I never forgot it. Never got it out of my mind. The fear in the animals being led into that slaughterhouse was something I have never forgotten. Oh, sure, they know that their friends are dying. Oh, sure, they know they're next to be killed. Oh, sure, you can see it and smell it. And people who have never been to a slaughterhouse should go once and make everyone into a vegan. Right. Yeah, and I think that's, I mean, that comes up quite a bit in my book is like we just... We, I think we've really underestimated the emotional and intelligence range of animals, right? Mm. Like cows are considered one of the dumber ones. And like you said, they, they're, they're picking up on a lot. And, oh, and they, so I don't I know why they say cow the is dumb. I, I, I've been around cows. They don't, they're not dumb. They're pretty smart. They, Elsie knows whether she's a dairy cow or she's going to be slaughtered. Right. Yeah, it's awful. You know, no, no. I, I, I become, as I gotten older, you know, I have a friend who fought in five wars. He was a born warrior and grew up in a hippie community in Marin County. I said, how the hell did you become a warrior? He's a doctor and a, and a musician. And he said, I'm a pescatarian now. He said, I, I just been around too much killing and death to ever eat anything that lives like any. Yeah. Animal. And that's what yeah. that's what happens with a lot of people. But again, this is not about that. It's about the wolf and the reintroduction. So why is it important why was it important to reintroduce the wolf is the real question. Yeah, I think um, there, you know, there's been a lot of research showing just the, how it fits into the larger ecosystem. And, uh, you know, it's like an apex predator. And so they so apex predators generally have an outsized sort of influence on on a, uh, species downstream from them. Uh, so there's been some really interesting research uh, in Yellowstone and elsewhere. Uh, one study that comes to mind. Um, I'm sure many are familiar with chronic wasting disease. It's this really nasty neurological disease that impacts deer and elk and sort of other ungulates. It's Never a lot heard like of it. Mad cow disease. Yeah, it's like mad cow disease. So it rots their brain, and it's sometimes called like the zombie deer disease because the deer will stumble around and have no fear of humans, just drool. It's really nasty, and Ugh. it can re- it can des- it can destroy a herd. Like what's it it's from? happened in Colorado? What is it? Well, that's. It's a prion disease, and this is getting a bit out of my league. But um, it it's it came it started in Colorado. There's a few different theories about how it was formed, and one of them is that it was from like a game farming, basically, and, and just concentrating animals together. But there's not a definitive uh-huh. answer. But it can survive in the like in the soil. These little prions can survive in the soil for like ten years. So, oh my so God. just a really nasty thing. Oh, I don't yeah. want to. So, anyways, they, eat that stuff. No, yeah, <laughs> it hasn't. There's been no human jump over. No, uh, there's been no no zoonotic. Uh, um. <laughs> no zoonotic. Yeah. <laughs> Home of borders, language, culture, the Savage Nation. Where are you? I see a, yeah. a boulder behind you. Where are you? 
I'm in southern Idaho near uh, near Wyoming border. I'm on a climbing trip. Uh, I'm in basically in the middle of nowhere, but there's quite good cell service. So. But where are you getting cell service in the middle of this wilderness? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny. I'm uh, where I'm camped is right above the um, national, uh, like a national uh, energy laboratory. So I think that they have good cell service. <laughs> oh Jesus! Are you <laughs> so running off? Are you that. running off? Are you running off Elon Starlink? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> Not that I know of. <laughs> fascinating, yeah. fascinating. So it, so there's been these studies with wolves um, showing that they they sort of will they'll they'll preferentially hunt and and kill animals that are uh, CWD positive and sort of it's almost like a clean a cleansing right of of these populations. So that's just one example like, of how wolves can be, um, you know, beneficial to the ecosystem. Well, no, I, I've look, I'm an outsider looking in on this whole thing. And of course, everyone has an emotional reaction to the death of a species. It's like, oh, God, you know, I, I, I learned when I was a young environmentalist or conservationist, and I consider myself a conservationist all my life because of the negative connotations of the word environmentalist, which is gluing your hands to a to a roadway to block traffic. It's a little different than, right. than to me than conserving the environment any way you can. And we all want clean airs, waters and places. And we all would like the idealistic, the ideal world of, you know, all the animals living happily forever after. But within diminished. Earth resources, whether it's the poor elephant, which I've we donated tons of money to it personally, my wife and I over the years till we almost threw our hands up the killing of those poor, beautiful creatures. Mm-hmm. Everyone has an emotional reaction of, oh, elephants shouldn't be killed. But it's almost the opposite for the wolf, which is no kill the wolf because the wolf is a predator. The elephant doesn't bother anyone, right. you know. Right. So why should we care about the wolf is the question. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a practical reason, um, like I had mentioned, they they are pretty they can really help an ecosystem, right? Whether it's keeping chronic wasting disease down or, ah, or, um, uh-huh. pre- or pre- preventing these. So like in Yellowstone, um, the elk there be- before wolves, they would go through these big cycles of like the, their population would grow to this huge number. Right. And then they would basically eat themselves uh, into a, into a famine. And then they would have this big drop off. So it was this what, big, wait, 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 you mean they'd kill all of the animals they were eating, or kill off the, 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 the resource. And then they go into a famine from killing all the animals. Yeah. So the elk would have, they would, yeah, they would have so many calves and whatnot. And then uh, to a point where they actually didn't have enough food and then they, there would be a, uh, a famine and wolves have sort of stabilized that. Right. Um, and, and sort of reintroduced, bio, you know, ecologists call it the ecology of fear. Uh, so, you know, where uh, predators kind of keep prey animals on their toes and, um, wow. kind of within more of a sustainable well, uh, true. population. <laughs> my yeah, fa- so my father taught me that in New York when yeah, I grew up in exactly, New York. Yeah, it's true. He said to me, you're going to come to work with me in Manhattan because it's dangerous and dirty. He said, otherwise, you're going to be soft <laughs> and weak. <laughs> so he used to make me right. go out right, alone yeah, as a little kid in the too. streets <laughs> of Manhattan. I hated it. And I hated walking <laughs> through the garbage on Ludlow Street to get him a sandwich. But it made me be very aware of my environment. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so I think wolves do that, right? They and they do that for humans too. I think that's oh, part of why. Uh, don't we, we have don't human wolves? wolves in our, yeah. Don't we have human wolves in our world? Everywhere you turn, there are we wolves. have human wolves. Yeah, but literally, also people that live around wolves. Uh, you know, you, you you think twice, so you think a little more when you when you know there's a wolf pack nearby. Mm. Um, by you know, by and large, wolves aren't going to attack humans, but uh, like I've I've encountered wolves in the wild, and and you definitely you see that they're they're fierce, they're predators, and and they have their own wills and desires that aren't connected to what I'm doing that day, and and that's sort of that can be a bit um, eerie. Do they? <laughs> I, I uh, saw did you? Wolf and, oh yeah. Did you say that they generally do not attack humans? Generally not. Yeah. Why not? We're just meat to them yeah i mean i i think it's um it's this they're they're opportunists right like they don't they don't want to risk risk any more than they have to huh. the, the places in the world where there have been there's actually been some really interesting research on when and where wolves attack humans and the commonalities um tend to be like impoverished poor places where they're using children as shepherds oh my uh, God. and it, yeah and so that makes some intuitive sense right kids are they're smaller and, and less threatening and so hmm. um that that's why i say generally it does ha it has happened it does happen some people say wolves never attack humans and that uh, isn't true uh -huh. uh, but it's it's not a uh it's it's you know in terms of things that you have to worry about it's pretty low on your list interesting <laughs> now in, yeah. in in your in the uh, anyway you're doing a great job yeah. i wish you the best with your book it's available on amazon i assume correct it is yes any Turn final words about wolves eli before you go back to climbing rocks <laughs> you know just that i mean it, this book is about wolves it's about the cultural and, and political side of it more than the ecological although i do talk about that but uh i i believe that it it really is ha has some lessons like what we just talked about these divisions in our culture and, and sort of the importance of of listening to the other side and, and trying to understand why and what they believe, even if it doesn't change what you believe, but giving them that courtesy in, and the respect. And, well, and in, that, in, you, in a you, sense, you you're a, you're a classic liberal. In other words, you are, you are how I was uh, educated as a young man at, in New York. Everyone was a liberal. I didn't know of anyone else. I had no idea there were, was a thing called a non-liberal. In fact, there was no definition of anyone, but what we thought everyone thought in a liberal manner, I went to Queens College, which was uh, these were all uh, emigrants from Europe. I had no idea. Most of them were communists. They were nice people, who, you know, brainwashed me. So I believed everything they taught me. I, it took me a while to understand a lot of the stuff I was learning was quite limited in its, in its worldview. But it yeah. gave me the ability to understand you could be a nice person and still be a political uh, opponent. You don't have to hate the opponent. Yeah. And the only way out of this is to stop hating. So I appreciate what you're doing. I wish you the best with the return of the wolves and take care of yourself. Don't slip on any slippery rocks. Hey, thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Keep up the great work. Appreciate it very much. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage Archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? 
please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.